HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. And when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at one of our restaurants, uh, Delanima, Lertuzzi, La Picho, um, or Alta Linea, which is our, our restaurant just for this summer up over at the Highline Hotel, or a wine bar Anfora, where I serve as the beverage director for a small group of downtown New York City restaurants. Um, and if you like this show, you can, uh, you can find other shows or listen to this episode again in the future on www.heritageradionetwork.org. Um, or you can uh, listen to it on iTunes. Um, very excited about our guest today. Um, this is someone who uh, who scares me a little bit, actually, because I cannot uh, consume his uh, his writing enough. Uh, otherwise, my my bank account will certainly. Uh, be the lesser for it. Um, his name is John Rimmerin. He's the founder of Garagist. Um, for those of you who aren't aware of Garagist, and I, and I guess that the majority of our listeners do know it, it's a newsletter, uh, a wine newsletter, um, that really features some of the most authentic, real, beautiful wine and writing about wine. Um, I get so excited that uh, about the wine that I, I usually am I'm unsubscribed from your list, John. Um, and despite that, I have plenty of friends, uh, uh, my, re- my regular friends, my industry friends, regulars in our restaurants who are constantly peppering me with, with your email saying, hey, check this out. Did you see you wrote about this? Did you see about that? And so um, I undoubtedly am I'm always tuned into what you're doing anyway. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Um, we, uh, just with that point, you know, they, they, they sometimes call us like the Pony Express of the wine business because somehow we get the mail to you. Uh, whether it's Ford's friends or whatever, um, people, you know, I hear that story a lot all over the world. 
please unsubscribe me. Wait, wait, don't unsubscribe me. I want to read it. So, no, thank, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I have to say that not only you know do I then receive these forwards, uh, um, I also look at it as useful training tools for the people in in uh, you know who work with me at the restaurants. Um, a lot of the wines that you're excited about, we we have on our lists, and uh, certainly if it's an Italian wine and I don't know about it, um, I immediately seek that out. But when you write about something that we've worked with for a long time, I know you've been big on Canalicchio di Sopra Brunello recently. Um, I will send that out to everyone on my wine team and say hey this is some great writing on this you should you know you should you should know about so thank you for for helping me out with that as well that's another thing that i hear quite often so thank you <laughs> uh you know the thing about garage east is that it is information first uh that's what it always has been it's uh you know really uh a journal of my life around the world uh it is not about the selling aspect of anything i think everyone sort of gets that and even, you know, my gosh, 20 years on, which is unbelievable to think that it's been that long. Uh, it's still every day, just like coming here this morning, you know, trying to get it here from Seattle, going to the UK later this afternoon. It's a journey. Um, and doing this little show with you today is part of that journey. Uh, it's about getting information out of it and about having people read and enjoy and uh, converse about what the writing is about. Uh, uh, it's just that that's what makes it fun for me uh, still. So when it becomes something that's a selling thing, I probably will stop doing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my favorite part about wine is the sense of discovery and finding new things. And you are, you are still actively doing it all the time. You said you, 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 this is just like New York is a tiny little stopover for you on this, this massive trip. Does it get exhausting after doing it for 20 years? It sounds like you have this insane travel schedule. <laughs> I envy it a little bit because I really would love to visit all the producers that you do. I'm exhausted right now. No, uh, <laughs> it is, yes, but uh, I love the life that I have. And there are so few people in the world that can say they've created a life for themselves. Uh, really that they could, you know, get up every single day and do something for hundreds of thousands, you know, some would say over a million people around the world every day at this point, and that it's still a big family, a small big family. Uh, and it, while it is exhausting physically, and of course, as I get older, it becomes more exhausting. But uh, the discovery part, even from when I was 18, 20 years old, is what fuels me. And, you know, most people know at this point, we don't just do wine. It's about art. It's about um, foodstuffs. It's about something culturally important, you know, of the moment in its place. And, of course, this predates uh, Twitter, all of the social media. This was about literally pounding the pavement and finding something in the moment that you took a snapshot of in your mind. Because this was before there were any phones. Uh, and somehow I had to recant that story, you know, via uh, text. And that's one of the reasons why we still to this day never show images. Yeah. And, and that's so interesting. You're able to sell and, and sometimes very high end products without any pictures of labels or vineyards or charming winemakers and, and you know, any, anything like that. And it's really done strictly on, on the strength of your writing and your words. Again, great, great point. Uh, when I, you know, have uh, interviewed with people like Forbes and you know business journals, they want to know, oh my gosh, what's the secret sauce to to Garagis? How can how can we copy this? How can we tell you know the listeners around the world or or, or you know that are going to read the the magazine? Uh, you've hit it on the head right there. The secret sauce of Garagis is the writing and the relationship that I have with people everywhere. 
okay? And, uh, you know, people are listening today and they want to think about how can I start my own business? It's not, you know, maybe it's wine or anything else or food or restaurants. You have to make that connection with people personally. There's so much noise out in the world every day, uh, whether that's electronic or just on the street. And uh, if you find a way to connect with people, which I fortunately have for all of these years, stick to something very simple and very basic. And for me, that uh, the basic Qual- you know, quality that uh, that we started with at the beginning was the writing. Yeah, and uh, it, it yeah. feels like you're getting an email from a trusted friend who's like, "Guys, guys, guys, yeah. this is awesome! You need mm-hmm. to know about this." What, even if it's like, like an email from a, a friend about a restaurant, like, "Hey, Joe, I know you would love this restaurant." And then, since that's a trusted friend you've known for years, they know that they like, you know, you like what they like then you're going to trust them and, and go for it. And that's what your emails feel like. They feel very real and authentic. There are uh, many people from Facebook. You know, you can go all the way down the line of, uh, again, social media companies that have come since I started. Uh, so many of those people are on my mailing list, and they privately will email me or they'll call me and ask me for tips about you know, gigantic decisions and things it's really quite flattering and i'm not sure why they're doing it to be honest with you uh but what it shows is that what we are doing and the simplicity of it still rings so true to people that everything comes around again and we have made things very complex uh, with technology but so many people still want something very human that they can connect with and by not showing images by not you know flooding you with hd uh videos and all these things that basically everyone in my industry does every day uh the the garagist email and the writing forces you to create the images in your head for yourself and my original idea when i first started uh was i wanted to have this read not only as a journal but as a novel uh going around the world and uh, when you read a novel, they don't show you pictures, correct? Uh, you imagine all the characters inside your own mind. It's very different from how your neighbor would you know, imagine the exact same character that they're reading in the same book. Mm-hmm. So um, usually when we think of uh, our own images and we think of our, um, let's say we, we read the story just with ourself, you know, uh, in our own head, uh, we create a really positive image for what that story is. Uh, when you are shown an image, Someone is telling you what you should see and what you should think. It's a very, very different approach. And so uh, after all of these years, um, it's what we do, and we don't change it. Uh, and it's brilliant. You said you've been around for over 20 years, and you, you also touched on that that uh, you're trying to hit on what is culturally relevant and culturally important. Um, and it sounds like there are some constants, but has, has that changed when it comes to wine over, over the last 20 years? Do you think of there being multiple eras within the, those times oh again great question uh yes so much so Uh, when i started uh there were very very few people really even around the world i mean you could go to the wineries and uh, into the vineyards who cared about natural winemaking and organics and biodynamic winemaking and uh getting back to the land let's say or the slow food eco movement that was nowhere to be found it was all really about commercialization tonnage more wine more 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 uh and wine was thought of more of as a commodity uh which unfortunately to this day still is very true uh but the i would say 
the number one thing is awareness around the world in youth culture. Um, the youth of today is hyper aware of not only what's good for their body uh, or what they do and do not want to put into their body food wise, uh, but also drink wise. And with the whole, uh, you know, bar Smith explosion and cocktails, uh, we, you know, these, these things all go hand in hand. Uh, but for me, awareness of youth culture, um, what they want to see, what they don't want to see as far as food and wine, uh, but also uh, the producers themselves where when I started, it was also about selling something and trying to create something to feed their families. Uh, yes, they still feel that way, but it's so much more important to them to uh, connect with the end user and to give the end user a food, quote unquote, that is healthy for them. And that's a gigantic bridge that, that uh, really has gone all over the world. Right. And there's been this ev evolving of uh, being a farmer from something where uh, <laughs> You did it and you kind of just scraped by and you did it because you had to do it because that's the life your family was built into. So now a lot of people do it as a choice. Uh, they, they're excited to be farmers. Yes. And the rules in all the European countries, you know, which is where we predominantly do most of our, our work, uh, they're all different, which is uh, as far as inheriting estates. There are very punitive uh, state taxes. Uh, when, let's say, a father dies and they give the, the estate to their children. Uh, it's really a shame. It is almost better for them to sell the property uh, than to inherit it. So this is something we're running up against quite a bit right now, especially in France. And it is bringing in a lot of foreign investment, which I really don't, and I have nothing against it, of course, but I really love to see the children who want to stay with that land and learn what they learned from grandfather, father, you know, the classic old situation. Not everybody can do it. Uh, but I've, I've found many, many cases that there are two types of uh, family wine wineries. One is that's handed down, handed down, handed down. And the other is one where the uh, son or daughter decides my father was doing this in a terrible way. You know, he, we have great land, but he had no idea what he was doing. And he wants to actually do something beneficial for the world. That's a very different mentality than how it was when I started. When I started, they wanted to do something special for their town. Yeah. Okay? So now, because of, again, social media and the Internet, uh, the winemakers and, again, youth culture connection around the world, they feed off of one another. And the winemaker that I may visit in, in Georgia uh, or in Turkey, he is hyper aware of the person in New York City who wants to drink his wine. That's totally different. And, Completely yeah. different. And we had a producer on this show, uh, Sandy Skerk from uh, Friuli, who was talking about the generational differences. And I think it's similar to what you're hitting on right now, how his father modernized everything from the grandfather's way and uh, mechanized and started using chemicals. And then... And so his father rebelled from his father. Now he's rebelling from his father and going back to the way the grandfather is doing things. <laughs> As I said, everything comes full circle. It's the same thing uh, with Garagiste and how we deliver our story you know, every day. Uh, at some point, people get oversaturated with, uh, with the noise, and they want to come back to the most basic virtues. Let's say that, okay? Whether it's uh, the land itself and letting Mother Nature and the uh, insects uh, rule and govern what the vintage is going to be. Or, again, it's the delivery of, of a message that you get in your inbox every day. And w was that clear to you, this mission of, of choosing wines that were made in a more handmade way without the chemicals straight, straight from the beginning, um, early on in your career? Or is that something that you've kind of evolved on? No, that was something that was really important to me. Uh, I was literally spat at. I was clawed at, cat fights. I mean, the whole thing. Because what back then... 
uh, besides maybe Joe Dresner, you know, rest in peace, uh, no one cared about it. You know, Kermit Lynch to an extent, um, but it wasn't really the mantra. He was just looking for great wines, you know, regardless of how they were produced. Uh, most of them were produced in a natural way. Uh, but I was um, working a little bit in the organic food business back then, which, again, was pre, you know, the whole foods explosion, all of these things. Uh, and I would go around the world, and invariably a farmer would say, oh, uh, you know, you're coming to look at my olive oil or something that I'm growing here, basil, uh, but I have this uh, two-acre vineyard that I don't know what to do with. Can you take some of my wine? Now, they didn't realize in the United States you can't just buy wine and olive oil and kind of bring them over. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Uh, but that was sort of the genesis of how I met a lot of the contacts that I still have today uh, was from my organic food um, background when I was very young. And it propelled me because I, I thought uh, back then, which I still do today, and I actually wrote about this the other day, uh, that why is wine still the only unregulated food that we have in this country? It is a, it's not... You have to think of it as a food. You go into a grocery store, they have the organic food section, you know, etc. Uh, but in many cases, the wine section is absolutely ridden with chemicals. It's ridden with additives, preservatives. There's 100 chemicals in some bottles of wine. So uh, that was something that I knew back then. It wasn't as pervasive, the knowledge, but yes. Yeah, that's crazy. And, th- and then there's this really, I think, just horrible system of labeling where the only the only additive that you have to put on is the contained sulfites. Exactly. And, and we have wines that say, no added sulfites, contain sulfites like, on the back label. And and that that's arguably maybe the the the, the least scary of all the different additives that, that people can can add to. Yes, it. very true. Uh, wine labels themselves are something that you should be a little bit wary of. Uh, producers around the world, not that this is, you know, 100%, uh, so don't quote me, please, uh, but they have a tendency to use the same label every year, no matter what the alcohol content is, no matter what it is, because it's less expensive to print once. To print five years' uh, yeah. worth of labels, yeah. And I'll, sure. I'll, I'll, many, many times I will get notes from people, you know, in who knows where in Atlanta, or some, you know, somewhere in, uh, around the world, and they'll say, "You said this wine was, you know, thirteen point two percent alcohol, but I got the wine delivered to me, and it says fourteen point one." And I try to explain, well, that label's from four years ago, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's very hard to explain that. So, wine labels themselves, again, unregulated. Uh, quote, they are quote unquote regulated, uh, but really to protect the consumer as far as what's really inside the bottle, we have a long way to go. Yeah, and, and I think that, that the work you're doing is, is really fantastic to get us there. You're really seeking out the truth. All right, on that note, we're going to take just a quick break. We'll be back with more uh, with John Riverman from Garage East. And the song here is called Don't Marry Mermaids by a band named Mamarazzi. We'll be right back. Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. 
When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, and we're back on In the Drink with my special guest today, John Rimmerman, the uh, founder of Garage East, uh, just an outstanding wine newsletter um, where you can also purchase some of just the most beautiful and real wines that are made in the world. Um, before the break, we were talking about some environmental factors uh, that go into wine, different chemicals, different additives that, that, that people might put in wines and how uh, John stays away from those wines. But uh, I, I know, John, I know you're, you're West Coast based and that kind of a big issue that's going on right now is a uh, huge drought that's going going through, especially through California. Um, and, you know, I, I just want to know, there's there's certainly a movement for, for producers to try to not irrigate. Um, I, I just got a letter from one of our wine reps uh, encouraging us to not buy irrigated California wines. Um, is that something Something that that factors into your decision making when uh, when choosing wines to uh, to feature. Absolutely, uh, I first of all, when I'm choosing something, I don't want to be punitive in advance. I think that's a mistake. I really like to go and observe things for myself. Uh, of course, taste everything, talk to the people that are making the wines. I even like to talk to local people in the area because you don't often get all the story you know, just from the winemaker or from the owner of a property uh, if they have an interest financially in something uh, they have a tendency to leave some things out so I will go to local bar uh, you know people or just guys at the cafe I still do this this is how I started and it's served me very well over the years uh, ask a few questions about this particular entity or, or place or why, you know, why the terroir in their mind is great. And in their mind, the terroir might not be great for wine. It may be great because of climate, and this is something you're getting at. Uh, they may go hiking or dirt biking or something through this area, but there's a reason they go on these trails, and it's because the water bypasses it uh, or it's always flooded. And so uh, in, in my trade, the difference of a few degrees in elevation can be all the difference between uh, valley floor, very hot climate, uh, and something and meaning needing irrigation or what you're saying, you know, getting a kind of an abusive situation as far as using natural resources uh, versus uh, something that is on a very, very slight incline that may not need that because the vines or the roots have dug down in a very different way. OK, uh, but as far as being punitive and saying, I'm not going to carry wines because they do, uh, you know, they have irrigation mm -hmm. a little bit dangerous. Uh, me also because the vintage is different and the summer is different and every single year. Now we're having a really rough time out in the West. It's just as rough in Washington state 
Uh, I can give you a little precursor on 2015 if you guys want it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 2015 is, if you think 03 in, in Bordeaux, you are getting oh, a good, no. yeah. Uh, I'll also give you a little precursor on 2015 in Europe. If you think 03 in Bordeaux, you can give another oh no. Uh, it, it is, and for those of you who aren't aware, just a, <laughs> just a over, just so warm and ripe vintage. Yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, wines that don't have longevity, and yeah, go. go. Um, so yeah, so the so far the temperatures have been unbelievably hot. It's been over 100 degrees in Paris. Um, again, just like it was in 03. Wow. Um, you know, we have a long way to go in the vintage, but so far it is looking like an 03 type year, which is very scary. Uh, but not just for the vine, for people actually living and and perishing in, in the heat. Um, now we're kind of going through the same thing all the way through Washington State. Now. Eastern Washington and Western Washington, meaning Seattle, where I'm from, two very different states. On the west side of the Cascades, it's uh, wet. Uh, obviously, where Seattle is, very green. On the west, on the east side of the Cascades, where Walla Walla, the uh, the gorge, the areas that are known Red Mountain, uh, it's extremely arid and desert-like always. But 110, 115 degrees uh, for extended periods, that is intolerable to the plants. They shut down even when they're used to that type of a climate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as far as irrigation is concerned, boy, you know this is a really tough call for me. Um, I would say I tend to look for states that try not to irrigate absolutely right off the bat um generally they're older vineyards as well the younger vineyards can't handle it as as much so um we don't have the same old growth uh in washington state as they do in california especially with zinfandel and some other kind of what i call heritage um varietals uh but uh, this is something that i think Again, it's kind of an all-for-one, one-for-all. If you know the producer is someone who has integrity and they're trying to do something that is real of the land, of, of the moment, of their terroir, uh, and they get stuck with a vintage like this, you sort of have to help them a little bit by supporting them as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a catch-22. Uh, but I do like the ideology of not immediately supporting. Uh, just we're going to irrigate, and that's what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah I, I buy that. I'm, I'm with you on that one. And uh, you know, Inva, you mentioned to me at the uh, before the show started, we were chatting. You said that uh, you were on your way over to the UK, and I had actually just assumed you were going to London to go to some fancy tasting. Um, but how foolish of me because you corrected me during the break that of course you're going to find some cool new vineyard site. Yes. Uh, the UK, um, this is a question I do get asked a lot. You know, what's the next really cool region? Where should I go visit? You know, what restaurants? All these things. Uh, don't think of just going to London if you go to England. Uh, the UK, I, I have said this over the past couple of years, I really believe is going to be the next great emerging region of Europe. Uh, and while there's a lot more, of course, Western infrastructure and there's a lot more income there to give them a head start over somewhere, let's say like Croatia. Uh, which also has amazing old vines, as does Macedonia and Georgia, and we could go on and on, Turkey. Uh, but the UK, because of climate change, whether you believe it is so or not, uh, the Champagne region has become warmer. And vintages, as I was just noting, 03, 09, these types of years uh, are becoming more the norm rather than in the 1970s, where very cold, cold vintages were, uh, even the 80s, where it was very difficult even to get the Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, or Meunier ripe. Uh, now it's overripe, overripe, and they're having to figure out, oh my gosh, how am I going to get balance? Well, that balance has moved uh, a 
over the English Channel. And because the UK is five to seven, even eight degrees cooler, and the soil is very, very similar, the cliffs of Dover, the white cliffs that you see, is the same limestone soil that exists all through Champagne. And so in Sussex, uh, south of London, through to the English Channel, they've been planting lots of Pinot and Chard and other varietals. Uh, and making amazing sparkling wines that you're going to keep hearing more and more about. And also, for me, the most exciting area is in Cornwall, uh, mm. on the western side of, of England. Uh, uh, again, Doc Martin territory, or you know, for fans of TV. Uh, that shows that region specifically. It's very small. But you're going to be seeing a lot of a lot of sparkling wines coming out of there. Wow! And at what price point? I mean, I imagine that the uh, that the land there costs significantly less than the land in Champagne. But uh, we were also talking about this before. The pound is is so you know right now the dollar is pretty strong versus the euro, and I imagine that's also helping you give people some some good values from from Europe. But uh, the pound is still pretty aggressive. The pound is king, even though people want to think the dollar is king. Uh, really, the pound is still the most aggressive, I would say, currency. And yes, while land is cheaper, because what ends up happening, especially in these unknown regions, is mm-hmm. that they're buying up farmland, right? And uh, land that someone wants to discard. But oh my gosh, you, you go through there as, let's say, a wine enthusiast, and you say, this would be an amazing place to plant a vineyard. Uh, well, they're thinking the same thing. So they're, they're buying some some of the farmland but it is more expensive to begin with unlike as i noted somewhere like croatia or something like this where young vintners can still go uh and and try and you know do this from the beginning right from scratch with uh very very old vines that were either left uh you know basically untended for 30 years left to, 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 to die off uh, and start them and resuscitate them from scratch. So, uh, again, catch-22. But as far as what you're going to see faster, I believe the U.K., again, because of the Western infrastructure, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Well, fascinating. And thank you for continuing to uh, to open our minds up and, and continue to show us uh, just new wines and, and great new places uh, that we should be looking towards. John, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, and for those of you who are not on the list, uh, you should definitely check it out. There are fantastic wines at really every price point. I mean, if, if, if you can spend the price of a you know, BMW on, on wine, on a case of wine, John has that for you. If you want to... Uh, if you want to spend $10 or $15 a bottle, there's outstanding wine at that price as well. I think really uh, that's what we're known for. Yeah, uh, and that's absolutely. what I've been known for really since my career started is I don't play favorites with the wines and prices. And we're really known for those 10 to $20 wines uh, that go way above and beyond what, what you would think that they are. Uh, they take a lot of effort to get all the way here to the United States, but it's so worth it. And because our, our philosophy has always operated somewhat as a co-op. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we try and do first come, first serve, and it's very egalitarian. And uh, while people get annoyed by that, um, then, okay, we, we will allocate sometimes if something is so popular. Uh, but really, the co-op philosophy and mentality that we've had since day one allows me to pass on, as you noted, the savings right now. Because the euro is, has depreciated so much against the dollar. Uh, instead of taking the extra margin and having it be, you know, a smart maybe business decision, uh, I would rather pass it on to you guys. Yeah, so. yeah and uh, fantastic. I should say I'm not the one to buy at the at the higher, <laughs> and I, I've been uh, a buyer at, at your lower end of wine, and uh, always just a, an outstanding experience with it. So thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so thanks to all of you for listening. I, I really appreciate it. I also would love to thank uh, our producer, um, Jory Morales, and engineer, Jack Inslee, and the featured musician from our break today, which was Mama Razi. Um, and uh, subscribe to iTunes. It really helps us if you subscribe. And please do uh, leave a comment. Uh, we, we love hearing from you. And if you want to engage with us on, on Twitter, um, we, will, we will get back to you. Um, and I also just really did want to send a, a great thanks to you. Um, you know, we've been doing this for over two years, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, to hosting in the drink every week. It's uh, it's a highlight of my week. I really appreciate it. And uh, also thanks to our sponsor, Michter's. Um, you can definitely find Michter's uh, rye and bourbon at all of our restaurants. Um, and then coming up next, we have a short clip of Aaron Fairbanks talking seafood with Rick Moonen. Thanks, guys. Bye. The new technology is study what nature does and emulate it. You know, so they're in, in, so next to these fish farms, they're growing kelp, and they're farming kelp, and they're farming mussels next to that. Super healthy because there's a lot of uh, nutrients come out of the, the byproducts of, of, of the farming, you know. Chef Rick Moonen knows his seafood. The proprietor of Rick Moonen's RM Seafood and R Bar Cafe in the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas chatted with Heritage Radio Network Executive Director Aaron Fairbanks for a special interview. I too was uh, was a, was a member of the the voice that said farm raised salmon was bad, and and you know what? First of all, let's understand aquaculture or farm raising, same thing. It's fairly new, you know, and uh, and and very necessary. More than half of what we consume globally right now comes from farms, and I and I don't think that's going to change. You know, we've we've done, done a, a really good job of uh, of uh, overfishing the the most popular species. Right. There's a lot out there that we're, that aren't popular. That if we st- if we could diversify our diet, it would take the pressure off of those wild species to come back. But in the world of aquaculture, um, a lot of changes have, have been made over the last um, five to 10 years you know they, they've learned you know because there's a there's, you know, when you when you put a lot of fish a, a, a large um, concentration of fish in a small area there's a lot of stress you know imagine packing the heck out of, a, of an elevator yeah like any and, population and, and, yeah. a, and the guy in the back sneezes and everybody's sick you know so that that same type of thing is going to happen when there's a stressed out situation and uh, so antibiotics have to be used in the feed in order to keep them healthy and protect your investment um, escapes happen you know they get out and all of a sudden you've got all these fish that didn't really belong in that area in the first place competing for food that the fish that belong there in the first place need to survive it creates an imbalance in the ecosystem and for me that's really what it's all about um maintaining a healthy environment creates good food you know healthy healthy water healthy fish for this entire interview and more of the best food radio on the planet visit heritageradionetwork.org This piece was brought to you by the International Culinary Center, culinarycenter.com. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 